0: hello and good morning and welcome everyone to this uh, podcast new episode um, I know I have been I haven't been that consistent with the uh, with the episodes rolling out but over the past a few months I've been um, like researching about this distributed uh, database technology which people call blockchain and um, so yeah most of the time has gone there and I wanted to get um, yeah, get out some quality content regarding to uh, our topic of today's episode. We have a really special guest with us joining today. He has done his higher education in Princeton and Stanford in a completely different sector uh, than what he is in right now. And um, so he has done his PhD in Stanford in medicine, if I'm not wrong. And, and he has now shifted his his entire, uh, entire focus on this tech industry, on the blockchain analysis stuff. And, and he is now a co-founder and uh, a lead researcher in Convex Labs. And they are working on a project uh, on NFTs and several other projects uh, behind there. Um, so welcome Dr. Nick, uh, how are you doing today?
1: Uh, I'm good. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. And yeah, it's always fun to talk to people who are interested in learning about uh, blockchains. You know, I I think I got my start eight years ago. Uh, Well, I I got into Bitcoin earlier, but I didn't start learning about the technical details until about eight years ago. I took a a Coursera class on cryptography by uh, Dan Bonet. This was before Ethereum even existed. And uh, there's just this one thing that resonated with me uh, that he said think probably in the first lecture which was that uh, everything that can be done centralized can also be done decentralized now the, the next question is what what do you it's a lot easier you think centralized so what do you actually want to do decentralized and and that's uh that's what we're exploring today uh you know
0: yeah years later still yeah and before before we go into all that stuff, uh, right into the blockchain and everything, um, I would like to know more about you. So, uh, what actually drove you to go from medicine to the tech industry? Because because I like really relate to that. Because in my high school, I had taken all biology courses. I wanted to do medicine. I was preparing for uh, the the big competitive exam back uh, home, and uh, now uh, I'm in my first year CS. Uh, so. Yeah, what drove you to be, to change your careers?
1: So, I mean, I always knew I wanted to be a scientist since I was in my kindergarten. So my dad was a scientist at the NIH. My mom also has a PhD. So it was pretty much destined to be a scientist. And I really enjoyed biology in high school. I also did enjoy computer science in high school. I only took like the AB Comp Sci AP exam or whatever. and I, I enjoyed it, but then when I, when I started in Princeton, uh, that was 2008 and it seemed like everybody in the CS department was just making these stupid apps, right? So that was like right when the iPhone came out. So you could make an app, like a flashlight app and sell it for a dollar. And then if a million people bought your app for a dollar, you were a millionaire. So, so that was very hot in 2008. So I was like, I don't really want to have anything to do with this comp size stuff uh, and biology was, was interesting. You know, so my degree is actually in chemistry, my undergrad degree, but, uh, you know, was doing a lot of biochemistry, really enjoyed that. And uh, I think my, I don't remember if it was my junior or my senior year, we, uh, I saw that you could buy drugs on the internet with Bitcoin and I didn't really do any drugs. So there wasn't, there wasn't really much use for me, but I thought it was very crazy that you could even do this and that it couldn't be shut down immediately. So that's, that's when I first heard of Bitcoin. I tried to get my buddy to do his econ thesis on it, but there was too much of a stigma to do anything that has to do with drugs. So sort of shelved it. We, uh, we, we did run a mining operation on all the computers uh, that we could get our hands on over the summer. So I stayed, stayed on campus uh, the summer before my senior year. Uh, unfortunately, we weren't mining Bitcoin, we were mi- mining Diablo 2 Gold. So we had about 30 <laughs> or 40 computers at the, at the peak mining Diablo 2 Gold. I don't even want to know. I've never calculated how much Bitcoin we would have been mining, but this was summer 2011, so it would have been a lot. Uh, uh, but yeah. anyways, never, you know, always knew about the cryptocurrency thing. I didn't really have any money. I bought some Bitcoin uh, in, in like 2013. Um, did not a lot, but uh, always thought it was cool that you could do all this stuff pretty much permissionlessly. Uh, a lot of it, even back then, was gambling and scams. But we, you know, al- always thought it was cool. Uh, then 2014, you know. I mean, I, I was very into cryptocurrencies, but it didn't seem like there was really much of a future for me there. So I got into Stanford, so going to grad school seemed like a no-brainer. And uh, I was always watching the space progress kind of from the sidelines, which it, w- it was hard because I, I was very uh, engaged in cryptocurrency, but I still have to finish my PhD. And uh, in 2017, I got SIM swapped. I don't know. Are you familiar with SIM swaps?
0: No kidding. Was that.
1: So these kids uh, younger than you, the youngest one, I think was 14 or 15 uh, called Verizon and uh, were able to convince Verizon customer service that they were me. And then they got my phone number ported over to their phone so they could get all of my text messages and all of my phone calls. And uh reason they did that is because then they could bypass uh sms two-factor authentication which fortunately i didn't really use for much other than my twitter account uh so they uh they took over my twitter account and (laughs) (laughs) extorted me for uh for fifty dollars in bitcoin uh at the time which was 0.05 bitcoins um so after that, I realized that this sim swapping was super rampant. I I'd known about it before, but I thought it only happened to like, you know, multimillionaires, not like <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so I got really into that and and realized that like if you had any crypto stolen from you, this was back in 2017. You were completely screwed. I mean, you couldn't even like tell the police because they didn't know what it was. Um and anyways, I started a Getting in touch with other people who had been Simsoft, who lost you know large amounts of money, and just started helping them out with uh, forensics because in a lot of these cases the the money was traceable or there were ways to you know we already had some information from the police for those bigger cases and we could kind of figure out where the money had gone. Uh, so I was able to help some people recover their money there, and uh, and we like started you know developing new new methods for tracing cryptocurrencies that I had right. assumed the police were doing, but it turns out they weren't. Um, so yeah, one yeah. thing led to another, got really into it that way and haven't really stopped since 2017.
0: Yeah, so so you talked about tracing the crypto, right? So we will come back. I like a lot of questions about that as well, but before that, uh, what is your aim behind Convex Labs and Honest NFTs?
1: So Convex Labs, uh, I co-founded it with uh, a bunch of people, all of, so all but one other than me are current students at Stanford and most of them are about to graduate. And then Jen uh, is the the other one who isn't still at Stanford. She graduated last year with an MBA. Um, So, and we all met on the Stanford Blockchain Club. It, It kind of formed pretty spontaneously. We just started working together and realized like we should probably, if, if you're going to be working together, you should probably have a corporate structure. Um, <laughs> just just the, the way it works out. So, and I'm, I don't do any of the business stuff, but we're, we're calling ourselves the Bell labs for crypto. Um, oh, right. Okay. So Bell labs, you know, came up with really cool research, but a lot of it was hard to monetize. I think in crypto, it's a lot easier to go from an idea to a product, right? The barrier to entry is very low, you know, we're like we're, we're not, I think our, our total pre-launch budget for the Honest NFT thing, probably gonna be like $150,000, right? You need like 10 times that to, to start uh, a more traditional company. Yeah. Um, so, so anyways, we can, you know, come up with these ideas, crank them out pretty fast, right? You know, I don't know if any of them are gonna be billion dollar ideas, but there's, there's certainly some money to be made. So, so anyways, Convex Labs is Bell Labs for crypto. Uh, you know, we've got Kuhn is running uh, uh, all sorts of other projects. Uh, we've got we've got some, I think, seven core members right now, and then a few other projects that we're affiliated with. Uh, so Honest NFT spun out of that. So, so one of the first projects that we did was uh was sniping NFTs, oh. uh, right? Which we've now we've kind of blown the whistle on but but starting this past summer uh, all these nft sales were going on and we realized that sometimes we could find the um the leaked metadata so uh, we're we're gonna have to get pretty deep into nfts now
0: yeah no worries. Uh, yeah
1: Yeah. so so right so these nfts uh they have different rarities right so if you look at board Ape. I think Justin Bieber bought a board ape yesterday that just had like a black yeah. hoodie, basically what you're wearing. I, I can't remember if it had a, a hat, right? It wasn't it wasn't anything exotic, you know. Uh, they called it a floor ape, which means that it's it's not rare, right? And then sort of like the the some of these apes have these super rare traits, right? Like they'll have a a crown or or whatever, um, some mm-hmm. some or zombie apes, right? That are more rare traits. And those go for a premium, sometimes like five times as much. They sell for about five times as much as a, a fluorate. Um, And sometimes that premium can be even higher depending on the project. So wow. the trick was sometimes these NFTs are supposed to be minted randomly, right? You're not supposed to know which one you're going to get before you buy it. Mm-hmm. But sometimes we were able to, to find the metadata leaked somewhere. Right. And it could be as simple as looking at the project's website and seeing that their API was leaking the data. Uh, Alternatively, a lot of them were storing the data on IPFS, which if you have the IPFS hash uh, for any information, including metadata or images, you can uh, you can pull that off. Right. It's a decentralized file storage network. So anybody who knows what information they're getting can get it. So we came up with all these different ways to find this information that, like, you know, it was publicly available, but the average user couldn't figure it out. And then uh, we would mint those NFTs. Uh, you know, so like, say we knew we knew number four thousand three hundred and one was rare. So we would, you know, we would mint four thousand three hundred and one. Sometimes we would have to mint a few NFTs before, or after it as well. But oh, okay. it turned out that. Basically, every time we we were able to do this, we would double whatever money we had put in.
0: So, uh, so, got- so what? So, sorry, uh, but what you're trying to say here is that uh, when I'm into an NFT, right, uh, of a collection or a project, I don't know. I actually don't know. Some users don't know what they're gonna get, right? Or they get a question mark. But then, what you're saying, if you get a metadata and all the data behind them, uh, the NFTs and all the rarity, you can decide when to mint, right? So, so, so for example, now I create a bot um, and that bot, I feed it all the metadata of all the collections or NFT projects that I want. And, and I put a time on it, like on that particular time, depending on how the minting is going on. Cause, cause in 24 hours, sometimes the mint just goes away. Like all the pro like uh, photos or whatever, JPEGs are minted. But uh, so if I create a bot like that, and if I, Place a time according to the uh, the rate at which the minting is happening, and then it mints that particular JPEG which has got the highest rarity, and then I sell it immediately. I get a profit out of it. That's what you're trying to say. Okay. Exactly.
1: Yeah. Um. So, and you you normally know, right? So each each NFT has a, a token ID, which is just a number, right? So a number like mm-hmm. one through And you normally know the number of the NFT that you're going to mint. So if you have that data, you can figure it out. So I actually started doing this two years ago. The the Austrian post office uh, sold these stamps. I might have one. I'm sure I have one back there. But um, they sold these stamps that had an NFT associated with them under like a foil thing that you you scratch away with a coin. Uh, Oh, yeah. Like a private key. It actually has a little bit of Ethereum on the stamp as well. So there's a private key with the NFT there. Uh, so, so in that case, I was also able to see, that was like the original metadata reveal NFT, or um, I was uh. able to do this. So it's already two years now, right. But it got really uh-huh. into it uh, this past summer when the NFT market was booming.
0: Yeah, that's that's really cool. I mean, whoever is like uh, listening to this podcast who wants to join the community, I have to say uh, they are a big fan of Simpsons (laughs) because I'm in their Discord. And (laughs) everyone's like most of the core team members, PFPs are Simpsons. (laughs) And uh, they have a lot of memes going on there. And if you're a Simpson fan, you have to join this community. Or if you want to learn more like me, you have to join this community. It's great. I can can link the Discord uh, invite there in the description, you guys can join. That's really great. So oh, and- anything, yeah, anything like really related to Simpsons or you're just, you guys are all Simpson Simpsons fans?
1: <laughs> so we might actually be changing our profile pictures today. Um, oh yeah, yeah, I, I already changed mine on Twitter because we just are, I, I might get in trouble. I, I always, I always spill <laughs> the beans a little bit early. <laughs> uh, no, we, our, our website just went live, I guess, last night. And it has the new uh, pictures, so I, I just changed my Twitter profile picture. Uh, we'll see. I, I might, CK might yell at me um, for. for <laughs> oh no, there.
0: worries. I uh, I can I can like post this recording like tomorrow or something.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, so, but yeah, we we just had a lot of internal Simpsons references. I don't even remember what the first one was, but there there were a lot. Uh, so then, so then Max and I ran with it. Um, I think Max might have seen every episode of The Simpsons. I'm not really sure.
0: Uh, I think
1: the first three or four hundred, but kind of kind of stopped when I got in college, or finished college. Uh, um.
0: Okay, so, so I had like um created an Instagram story uh, for asking any question, uh, from my audience, uh, who wants to ask anything about this topic before we dive more deep. Further, what we were talking about NFTs and all that blockchain and that stuff. So, uh, so that I think whoever is listening, new to this the space, they can like really understand uh, before diving deep, right? So, so the first question, like most of them asked, um, is is there anything even like Web three, or is it Web two point one? And if there is, is there is it just a hype that some billionaires have created to get rich quick?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, there's, there's a lot of web 2.1 and I think there's a little bit of web three. And I think part of that is because it's just way easier to make web 2.1. Right. So there's a lot of things that are a hundred percent centralized except that they're using the Ethereum network.
0: Right. So
1: people, I guess
0: Ethereum network itself is centralized.
1: (laughs) Well, it's debatable i mean i, I think it, it's fairly decentralized right like i mean we weren't able to uh are you familiar with the parody hack there are two parody hacks uh, parody oh. hack one parody hack two.
0: Oh, you can go there yeah you can describe yeah. that i don't know
1: <laughs> yeah so I, I don't know the the number off the top of my head but they uh they had a multi-signature wallet that has a lot of ethereum stuck in it uh i want to say I want to say it's like a million dollars. Sorry. Sorry. uh, Thank you. So there were two. So there was one where somebody was able to steal the funds. And then there was a second one where somebody was able to lock the funds. Um, So I don't know the off the top of my head, how much it is. It's like at least a hundred thousand ether. Right. And um, they're stuck in this broken multi-signature wallet. They're, you know, it's provable that they that the funds cannot be taken out of this wallet. So Parity uh, put forth a proposal to allow them to unlock their funds um, from this from this contract. And uh, you know, people personally, I mean, they were they were going to take that money. People are going to take that money and invest it in things and probably make the ecosystem better. Uh, mm-hmm. But the only way. To get the money out was with a hard fork uh, uh so we weren't able to rescue the money uh ergo we're not that centralized we're kind of you know everything is somewhat centralized but um here we go so it, it's it's a couple hundred and five hundred and thirteen thousand ethers frozen Oh, so so you know, like that's a lot of money and, and if if you can centralize Coordinate rescuing that money in a centralized manner. There's a lot of money to be made, but, uh, so we couldn't. So like centralized and decentralized are a spectrum, but I would say that we're like fairly decentralized. There's, there's no one entity that can, uh, that can rescue 500,000. Yeah.
0: Can, but, can you like distinguish some of the topics? Like, uh, anything, any project, which is web 2.1 and which is web three, anything. <laughs> I
1: think a lot of NFT projects are very much Web 2.1, right? So the only thing that they're really using Ethereum for is um, uh, to get your money and mm. to store who has which NFT, right? So, oh. um, so that's, you know, I guess there's a little bit built on top there you know and if like the actual token nobody can reverse it if you send it to someone but that, that's about the most decentralized aspect
0: yeah so um, so regarding the nfts uh so it was i've heard like um, uh like most of the nfts the pfps they, they can't be stored on uh blockchain cuz it's very slow or uh, the file is really large so what they do is that they put it on centralized servers right and just the the URLs or I don't know IP IPFS either of those is is stored on the block, and that so 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 if I pay for for example for a BFIC tomorrow, and um, so I'm paying for the URL and not the PFP.
1: So there's there's like three ways that I've seen uh, the images stored. So like oh. number one is like you said. A lot of these uh, NFTs, they just point to a centralized server, uh, like an AWS server that stores your image, right? So the, 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 on the blockchain, there's this token URI, which points to where your metadata is and, mm-hmm. and potentially your image as well. And yeah, it can just point to uh, whatever, boardapes.aws.com. I don't know if, if boardapes are on IPFS or not. I think they are but a lot, of, a lot of NFTs aren't. So yeah, that's like purely centralized. If that server goes down, your image is gone. Uh, we see these like projects that actually rug pull, which is ridiculous because like not, like all they have to do is keep the server up and then that image will keep working and they won't even do that. They'll, they'll stop paying the $10 a month for the server. So that's like the most centralized. And then sort of like one step more decentralized is to point it at an IPFS hash, right? So instead of, using HTTP, uh, the domain will be like IPFS, colon, slash, slash, and then this CID, right? Which is this, uh, this Ash, hash, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, so that's a little bit more decentralized, because so they are hosting your image data on IPFS. And normally, people are using a service called Pinata or Fleek, or there's a few others that will host, that'll run an IPFS node for you and host that image. Uh, so if they stopped hosting that image on IPFS, it's possible that the image would disappear and you wouldn't be able to recover it. However, you can actually uh, back up your images and put them on IPFS yourself because the the hash maps to the image. So as long as you have that image, you can like, you can store it. So that's sort of like, Somewhat decentralized, but it's still, you know, it's using normally one centralized IPFS node. Um, mm-hmm. So it's and there's there's a there's some services that are actually trying to um, make it easier for people to back up their images and put them on IPFS. I think I think there's one called Club NFT uh, that's that's trying to offer a solution. I'll, I'll link to it. So that's oh. and if you if you understand what they're trying to do there then you basically understand IPFS. And then the the third one is there are a few projects that actually put the image in um on the blockchain in the SVG file format. Oh. Uh but yeah like you said it's expensive it, it takes up a lot of space on the chain.
0: Yeah, I guess uh, CryptoPunks do that. Not sure.
1: Yeah, I'm not, I'm actually not super familiar with that. They're like so early that they, they barely even conform to the ERC 721 standard. Uh, Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, so another question that I had, uh, like uh, my audience asked on Instagram was, uh, why is this crypto price crashing and is the Fed involved behind this?
1: Uh, You know, crashing is relative. The price goes up, the price goes down. Uh, that, uh figuring out if you can if you can accurately predict when it's going to go up and down, you can make a lot of money uh, by swing trading. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's these boom and bust cycles and you can kind of look at the chart, right? Like if you look mm-hmm. at the Bitcoin price since sort of 2010, when we had a somewhat accurate price, it's generally trended up, but it is very volatile. Um, so it goes up and down. It's it's really hard to uh, people will always try and um, attribute price changes to specific events. You know, I mean, China. I think China banned Bitcoin like twenty or thirty times. Although the last time they actually pretty much they they they, they took it a little bit further than usual. Um, so you know, there's there's always these little catalysts. Uh, I mean. I think the last yeah.
0: one,
1: you know, a lot of it is, is like a, um, Olympus Dow um, kind of crashed. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, was, it was, you know, certainly a lot of uh, Ponzi elements there, right, and whenever whenever a big project like that decreases, a lot people uh, start accepting lower risks and want to switch from volatile assets to less volatile assets. So I think that probably contributed to the, the most recent decline
0: yeah so the next question uh people asked was uh that they, they have been hearing like this a lot of times that uh cryptocurrencies are not here for uh uprooting the banking industry uh they're here for something else
1: I i think there's a lot of purposes right i mean you've got meme coins at one end uh like dogecoin or whatever um I don't, I don't personally see Dogecoin becoming like a global store of value. Uh, you know, I think that we're going to go through a few phases. So Mm -hmm. right now we're, we're just beginning to, uh, get mainstream acceptance. You know, um, Bitcoin has been billing itself as a store of value, which may or may not be accurate, but, um, certainly some people see it that way and they see it as a way to, uh, Hedge against dollar inflation, but a lot of other people just see it as a speculative asset, um, right? So, so you get you get some diehards who think like Bitcoin is digital gold, and you've got other people who think it's uh, the greater fool theory, where like you buy it with the hope of convincing someone else that it's worth more than you paid for it, right? And yeah. I think both can be true, um, right? So that's that's like Bitcoin, right? Then Ethereum, I mean, I'm. I'm a huge fan of DeFi. Uh, you know, I've never—I don't think I've ever gotten a loan from a bank, but I've gotten a lot of loans from DeFi protocols, and it's really easy. So, if I were a bank, I would be a little bit worried. But that's also—I mean—I have access to this because I have Bitcoin and Ethereum to use as collateral to borrow against, right? If I had a house, I would get a loan from a bank because I'd use mm-hmm. my house. And so, you know, right now, everything is pretty much virtual. There's very few real world assets on the blockchain. Uh, so I don't think that we're really gonna be competing with banks until we see real world assets and, uh, you know, things from the the meat space as we call it. Right, yeah. right now so, everything's digital.
0: Yeah, so you talked about uh, the loan and stuff that you're doing with crypto, crypto lending. Uh, could you explain like further uh, from the developer point of view that um, what if if i uh, lend a crypto what really happens behind the hood
1: so the protocol that i'm the most <laughs> familiar with is compound finance so if you say you had a bunch of bitcoin um you know you bought it 6 months ago uh you, if you bought it 6 months ago you're probably down quite a bit so you <laughs> you, kind of, you it doesn't make sense for you to sell it because of tax purposes uh you know i guess you can take a loss but so Say you want to keep that Bitcoin, but you need to pay rent this month. So what you'll do is you'll, you'll wrap that Bitcoin. So it goes on the Ethereum num- Ethereum network. It's called wrapped Bitcoin. It's, it's run by this company called BitGo. Oh, it's also kind of centralized the way they do it, but uh, you would put your wrapped Bitcoin in compound compound would have it as collateral. So like, let's say you put one Bitcoin in there. It's worth, I think $38,000 this morning. Um, so, Compound is holding your Bitcoin, and uh, you can op- so you can uh, other people can borrow that Bitcoin from you if they have collateral, uh, and they're actually going to pay you a small amount of interest for it. I don't know what the interest rates are right now, um, but we'll focus more on your borrowing first. So you've given them thirty-eight thousand dollars with the Bitcoin as collateral, and they'll let you borrow. I don't remember if the collateral factor on that is 60% or 75%, but you, you don't want to, let's say they'll let you borrow up to about $28,000 worth of whatever you want. Um, I wouldn't recommend going right up to the limit. I would say sort of, uh, borrow about half of the value of your collateral. So you've put in 38,000, you can borrow $19,000 worth of USDC or ether or whatever. Um, and then the bet that you're making there. So, so the risk is if your Bitcoin goes down in value more, and your Bitcoin is worth uh less than what you borrowed, they can liquidate you. So they'll they'll take away your Bitcoin, and your debt is erased. But like you you pay a penalty for that. So you have borrowed whatever twenty thousand dollars worth of USDC, but you're you know they've taken your Bitcoin, uh, yeah. and your debt's gone. So, so there's a bunch of reasons that you might want to borrow Bitcoin, right? If you want to short, if you think the Bitcoin price is going to go down, they can borrow your Bitcoin and sell it, and then their their hope is that they can buy it back later for cheaper. Uh, oh. So it gets it gets very complicated, right? Uh, compound is sort of one of the simplest versions, and even that's complicated. And then people are coming up with all these crazy ways to get leverage. Right. So, so, uh, you know, you only have one Bitcoin worth of collateral, but you're actually borrowing uh, like, and you, you want a short ether or whatever, you mm-hmm. can actually borrow like about three times as much ether as your Bitcoin is worth, as long as you're uh, selling it for dollars and then putting those dollars in compound and borrowing more ether. So you get into these circular positions. Uh, some people, and you know, some people will say it looks like a house of cards, uh, I kind of disagree. I mean, you can see who's borrowing from who on the chain. You can see and you can kind of see what strategies people are using. You can figure out who's shorting Ether, who's, who's shorting Bitcoin and, and so on uh, just by looking at the chain.
0: Yeah, that's that's insane. Uh, so another question people ask that uh, the Web3 is researching on Web3 is like a full time job itself where do you uh, really get the knowledge? Is it Twitter or you just go surfing?
1: God, there's so much, we call it alpha, right? Any, any, <laughs> any edge that you can get trading, people put so much alpha on Twitter. Uh, it's all about following the right accounts, um, right? And the right accounts are not YouTube influencers.
0: Uh,
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, I, uh, I, yeah, one of the best is uh, uh, Bert Miller. Who who uh, is at Flashbots? I don't know what his official title is, but he he basically founded uh, Flashbots, right? And um, he'll he'll post so much valuable stuff that he he has seen in his Discord community that people are doing. Um, so yeah, it, it's it is a full time job. Uh, it's it's more than full time. I mean, you basically have to uh, just yeah you know seeing what people are are doing on Twitter, trying to understand uh, the economics, right? A lot of this is is in these Discord channels, right? Um, Or on these governance forums, and there's just so much valuable information there because you can sort of, first off, you can see the sentiment, uh, how people are feeling about the project, what they think should be built next. Uh, You can, you know, you can check the GitHub and see how active the developers are, see what kind of other projects they're working on. see if there might be new partnerships between different projects or new synergies right because what when you get these synergies all of a sudden these things just um become more useful and more valuable right uh mm-hmm. so uh there's a lot of composability right so i can take an nft uh lend it in a nft or i can i can use my nft as collateral in nft5 borrow money use that to buy nfts from nftx uh you know put it in a Uniswap pool like all of these things that it, it's all super composable and you just have to understand how how you can make all of these different blocks fit together yeah
0: as uh, they say do your own research <laughs> yeah. yeah
1: yeah and, and the, the learning curve is steep i mean uh everybody you know gets rug pulled occasionally Um, I think I've managed to avoid most of them. As soon as you see red flags, it's just not worth taking risks, especially if the risk is like 100% loss of funds, right? It's one thing if you lose, you know, one or 10% of your money, but, you know, you can recover from that. But if you lose 100% in a rug pull, that hurts.
0: Yeah. Okay. Uh, So the last question uh, that I got is, if the developers are building the so-called smart contracts or even the blockchain, then doesn't the power lie in the hands of the coders? And how is it decentralized then?
1: Uh, yeah, you know um, the well. So there's there's again a the spectrum. So there's some cases where uh, the developers have all of the power, and they can actually they have the power to take your money if you put it in their smart contract. Right. And that's not decentralized. There's actually a lot of, we call that custody risk, right? Can the developers take this money? And sometimes there's like more complicated mechanisms by which they can take the money. So it's not like they can just call a function on the smart contract and take all your money out, but maybe they can mint more of a token and then sell it to you if you put, if if you're willing to buy it in Uniswap and they'll sell it to you immediately, you know, 15 seconds after they mint it and then you've lost all your money. So there's, there's there's that end. And then at the opposite end of the spectrum, you have ungovernance. And uh, uh, ungo- like, um, yeah, so ungovernance is the exact opposite. So Uniswap version one is a great version of that. That contract is completely immutable. Nobody can change any factors. I think Uniswap version two probably also is completely ungoverned. So. Like that, that contract is immutable. So yeah, the developers wrote it, but they've uh, ceased to have any control of it. Um, then of course, Uniswap version three is the, the third version, almost no control over it, except for that the uh, Uniswap governance has the ability to turn on fees. I don't, I don't remember off the top of my head what the fees are, I think five basis points up to five basis points can go to the uniswap treasury right so they're not going to turn that on for a while because there's still some competition mm-hmm. but that's that's the only the only thing that the developers and in that case the mm-hmm. token holders can do um, another project that i'm really excited about is reflexor which is uh it's a maker dow fork but um their goal is to become almost completely ungoverned which means that uh, no, but it, it's it's all algorithmically controlled, um, with a, okay. with the exception of a few little parameters that might have to be tweaked in the case of an emergency or if something goes wrong or uh, actually dollar hyperinflation. Um, mm. But that's that's a uh, reflexor okay. is pretty complicated.
0: Yeah. Okay. Thank you for uh, answering all those questions. Now, if you go to, what do you think uh, is blockchain analysis, and uh, what do these companies like Chain Analysis and Elliptic do?
1: So, I mean, all of this data is on a transparent ledger, and that goes back to the Silk Road, you know, in 2011, 2012, right? People were sending Bitcoin to the Silk Road, Uh, then they were buying, you know, whatever substance they wanted on the Silk Road. Uh, The Silk Road was centralized, most custodial but it would, it would actually handle escrow, I think. Um, and then, you know, the vendor who sold you your product would receive it. Now, at the time, there was this myth that like Bitcoin was untraceable and anonymous, which couldn't be further from the truth, right? So even back then, like me, you know, a non-computer science kid was able to find the Silk Roads uh, Bitcoin wallet on a Block Explorer and I could see that any Bitcoin that had, like, if I sent Bitcoin there, you could see it on the ledger. And if I sold something there and withdrew money from the Silk Road, you could also see that on the ledger, right? So the the question is, like, how do you trace these funds across this ledger, right? And the other thing is you need to know, right, this Bitcoin address is just like a, a hash, right? You don't, you need to know who that Bitcoin address belongs to. And there's a few different ways to do that, right? So one is what we call mystery shopping, which is I'll make an account at the Silk Road, I'll buy something or I'll send some money there and then I'll see where the Bitcoin goes. And you do that a few times and you start to be able to write algorithms or heuristics that can say like, okay, that's almost certainly a Silk Road address. That's a Coinbase address, uh, right? And you, you start to understand how the, uh, the deposits work. So I have a unique, uh, if I, if I want to deposit Bitcoin to my Binance account, I always send it to the same address, which is my Binance deposit address. Right. And then you get these tricks like, okay, well, if I know that's a Binance deposit address and these three different addresses have all sent Bitcoin to that Binance deposit address, then they probably belong to the same person. They probably belong to whoever's Binance account that is uh right so then you get all these different heuristics so that's that's sort of at the most basic level right and then we can get all sorts of off-chain data right so um i i use an ens name right which is a uh, backs.eth and it it points to my uh ethereum address right so if you look at my twitter account you can find my ens name and now you can use that ens name to see which uh ethereum account it points at now you've labeled my ethereum address so you can tell you could look right now at my Ethereum address and you could find my FTX deposit address.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Right. So, so it's just all these different ways of, of understanding how the things uh, connect. Right. So companies like Chainalysis and Elliptic, uh, the main IP they have is they have huge databases of labeled addresses. Uh, they, they, they claim that they don't label addresses, but like, I, I know that they do. Right. So they, they've, uh, you know, they, they buy, um, like, they have people who scrape forums. And if you put a Bitcoin address in a forum, uh, they'll be able to search that and find the context where it was posted. Um, so that's one of their big pieces of IP is just, like, knowing which accounts belong to who, right? And the other one is um, they can get IP address data. So they have a, a large number of nodes and they can see, like, if, if I broadcast a Bitcoin transaction from my node, right? I'm, I'm signing a message and my node is sending it out to the other nodes and eventually it's going to make its way mm-hmm. to the Bitcoin miners who will include it in a block. So what they do is they have a large number of nodes and they can kind of triangulate which node broadcasted a transaction first. Uh, so that's like one of the tricks. Uh, they've got a few others. Um,
0: so it's like if if I use uh, Bitcoin or any other crypto on, on some platform like Silk Road and uh, so, so if these guys would just like label those uh, cryptocurrency as something like bad or, or bad uh, Bitcoin, and then they will just keep tracing it back then. And then they will see where, where does it go? Which wallet does it end up to or something like that? So, so, so while doing so, they don't, they still don't uh, like get to know who's behind the wallet, right? They just, they just get to know the hash. So, yeah.
1: yeah. So the only way they get to know who's behind the wallet is like, if you post it in a forum where they can read it or if you send it to an exchange, right. If you send it to Coinbase and Coinbase has your, your uh, KYC documentation and they have like a picture of your driver's license or whatever, then uh, Coinbase can figure out who it is. Right. So the law enforcement will say like, okay, who, who does this Coinbase account belong to Coinbase will hand over the data and then you'll get a visit from the police. Um, right. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's one end. Right. And you know, you can kind of, I mean, it just came out that uh, this, this Wonderland thing. Um, I don't know if you saw that, right? So this was... Yeah,
0: I saw you guys were discussing that on Discord yesterday. Yeah, I mean, yeah. that was a
1: bad one. Um, right, so this guy, OX Sifu, it turned out that he uh, he had been... Uh, oh, somebody posted a hilarious meme about that that explained the whole thing. <laughs> um, right, so, so this guy... He, he was one of the owners of Quadriga, right, which was a Canadian exchange. People lost a lot of money. I don't know how much, either like 130 or 260 million. It was a lot of money that um, just kind of disappeared. Uh, people said it was, they were running some sort of fractional reserve. Uh, the, the CEO or president or whatever disappeared in India and like was cremated so they can't prove that he's really dead. Um, so So there's like, that's a pretty, that's a wild story. I'm not, I'm not an expert on it, but anyways, this guy OXIFU turned out to be like one of the chief investors in Quadriga. Uh, and he was also the treasurer, <laughs> the CFO for the the Wonderland treasury. Right. And the thing is uh, chain analysis and, and ciphertrace and those companies, Elliptic, they had to have known um, mm-hmm. because like the the OXC address was only like two transactions away from the uh, the the quadriga uh, I think his name was Michael Patron. I don't know how you pronounce his name. But like mm-hmm. it, it was very easy on-chain if you had that label for the quadriga uh, founder's address. Um, mm-hmm. so you know, people try to be sneaky, but there's just a lot of ways to make a mistake and and uh let these rather sophisticated companies uh, figure out who an address belongs to.
0: Yeah, but like I've I've like heard uh, some of the cases where people say that we could change our uh, wallet address whenever we do a transaction. Like our hash changes every time we do it. So if that happens, then what's what's the deal behind that?
1: So that's a, a pretty standard way to do, especially Bitcoin. Um, most Bitcoin wallets will change your address after every transaction. So like, say I have one Bitcoin and I send you 0.1 Bitcoins. Uh, you'll see my wallet with one Bitcoin and you'll see 0.1 going to yours. And then I'll actually send the other 0.9 to a different address. And that's called a change output. Uh, mm-hmm. So in theory, an observer doesn't know if the 0.1 belongs to me or, or to the person I'm paying. Uh, but there's a bunch of different heuristics that we can do to trace that. Uh, I've got one one case where um, somebody was able, somebody mistakenly connected two addresses because of these uh, uh, change transactions. So they, um, we, there was there was like one Bitcoin that we suspected belonged to uh, uh, a criminal, but we couldn't prove it. And then um, there was another 0.1 bitcoin that we also suspected belonged to him, but we also couldn't prove it. Uh, and then he made a transaction that was like 1.1 bitcoin. So the one bitcoin wasn't enough. So he spent the 0.1 bitcoin that we thought belonged to him and the one bitcoin that belonged to, that we thought belonged to him at the same time, which confirmed to us that both of those uh, addresses belonged to the same person, right? And then we were like, okay, well, the odds of that happening are really low, so it's almost certainly him. Um, so there's, you know, like, there's just weird things that can that can go wrong, um, especially when you're using a transparent ledger. With Monero or uh, Zcash, it, it gets a little bit more challenging.
0: Yeah, uh, that was my second question. Like, Monero and Zcash, you, talk, you wrote, uh, like, you have pinned that uh, tweet of yours, uh, right, uh, on the Monero, uh, not sure what it's, called but then uh, uh someone had managed to trace uh, monero right monero transaction so is that is that like monero is still secure or like zcash monero
1: so this was back in uh 2017 so that was uh the the funds from the WannaCry malware mm-hmm. so they um right so i don't know if you remember that but they uh they got this um there was another threat actor called the Shadow Brokers, uh, who leaked some data that leaked some malware code that had been stolen from the NSA, uh, called Eternal Blue, I think, and this was just this vulnerability that basically uh, made it very easy for them to ransomware computers, and it was wormable, right? So one, there's there's a lot of debate over whether they did it deliberately or not, um, but this worm. Got out, infected a few computers, which then infected more computers. Right, then you have exponential growth. So every unpatched computer uh, got got wormed. And what was interesting is that actually uh, the 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 vulnerability that this uh, worm exploited actually had been patched a few months earlier. Uh, and there's a lot of speculation about how, why it was patched. Uh, but m- most people sort of agree that somebody knew that this had been re- had been uh, had been stolen and just sent sort of an anonymous tip to Microsoft and that that happens from time to time. It'll be like, I know some people Mm -hmm. who work in that industry and they'll get like a CD in the mail with like some code on it. Um, But uh, yeah, so so anyways, WannaCry, you know, I think it it must've basically uh, destroyed um, like I think about a million computers worldwide. Uh, and then they, they did pretend it was a ransomware. It actually, it's unclear if you could actually decrypt your drives um, mm-hmm. if you paid, but uh, they, they collected like a couple hundred thousand dollars from their victims. And then they, um, they used a method called chain hopping where they converted the Bitcoin to Monero. So the trick there was we were able to um, get all of the outgoing Monero transactions from Shapeshift and uh, we were also able to get all of the, uh, so what they would do is they would convert the Bitcoin to Monero and then send the Monero back to Shapeshift and convert it back to Bitcoin. And we had uh, a database of all of the Bitcoin deposits and withdrawals and all of the Monero deposits and withdrawals from Shapeshift. So we were able to do this probabilistic method um, to trace that. So it has gotten a lot harder to trace Monero since then. Um, that's not to say it's impossible, but the way it works is you always need to have uh, for the chain hopping, you always need to have a database of uh, income, in incoming and outgoing transactions. And then it's called an Eve Alice Eve attack where uh, Eve is the eavesdropper, which is, is us in this case. Um, and then Alice is whoever's trying to, to uh, you know, make private transactions. So yeah, it's, Monero's gotten a lot better. They've made a bunch of big improvements since then, but that's not to say that it's it's impossible to trace Monero. You just you need this exchangeable mm-hmm. data, and uh, you sort of need the people to make mistakes. So uh, the not- ring,
0: started. the ring signatures that they created, right? Was that created after this, or was it before?
1: Uh, this was. This was a, uh, sorry. Okay, so the ring signatures came out um in uh the i think i want to say that they were released the end of 2016 but they weren't mandatory until uh early in 2017 yeah so the way the ring signatures work this is this is really cool cryptography um and we'll we'll take a take a step back just just do ring, ring signatures um yeah they you okay um say you uh, were in the White House, you were like a White House staffer and you wanted to leak some information Uh, and you wanted to be able to prove that it really did come from somebody with somebody within the White House. Um, So how would you do that without like, you wanna prove that you're in the White House, but you you don't want to go to prison for the rest of your life. So you don't want people to know it was you right? So how are you going to prove that? Uh, and one way to do that is a ring signature. So let's hypothetically pretend that, uh, everybody who works in the white house has, uh, has a public key associated with them and only they know the private key. Um, so you would do a ring signature. You would, uh, you would sign a message with your public and private key. Uh, and you would, uh, you would uh, use some cryptographic functions to make it to make it look like, um, sorry, the only information that your signed message has is that it was signed by one of the hundred uh, private public key pairs owned by, controlled by a White House insider. But like, you can't say which one it is, right? So you've, you've signed it with yours, but nobody except you knows which one it was really signed with. Mm-hmm. It could plausibly be signed by anybody in the White House. Right. So all you know is that one of the hundred people on this list was the one who really signed it. Right. So then you have a hundred suspects, but you can't narrow it down to a hundred suspects. So then the way the Monero ring signatures work is like that. There's a, there's 11 outputs uh, being spent in a transaction, but only one is the one that's really being spent. The other 10 are decoys, which should be like plausible, but they're not really the one being spent. So then the trick is to figure out Uh, which output is really being spent and used as an input in a transaction. And we had a probabilistic method there where, um, I don't know off the top of my head, I think it was like there were 13 transactions that were all received by the WannaCry guys. And then there was one transaction that spent uh, seven inputs. uh, So it had seven inputs and like 30 decoys, uh, 35 decoys. But the odds of like a transaction having seven inputs that we know are all uh, controlled by the same entity are really low. So you could theoretically uh, spoof it and and give me a false positive. If you knew that all of these inputs were uh, controlled by this guy, you could Mm -hmm. use them as decoys. And I would think that you were really spending it. I haven't seen that happen yet, but it is it is theoretically possible. There's a lot of fun stuff you can do there. (laughs) (laughs)
0: so cool listening about this (laughs) okay uh so the next thing was that if if like for example all these ransomware attacks or any attacks which are happening right people still ask all these attackers still ask bitcoin even if they know that they're being tracked they can be tracked uh why do they still do it
1: So some of them have actually started giving like a 10 to 25% discount for Monero, which probably reflects their, uh, their money laundering costs. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, you know, the thing is the Bitcoin can be traced uh, to some extent and we've seen some of that, especially with the uh, colonial pipeline. I think they were able to catch one of the, um, the affiliates who actually installed the malware uh, through some some blockchain analysis and some other stuff as well uh, it, it seems like they i'm, I'm not super up to date on that case but it seems like they uh they did hack some servers that were uh being used by the by the ransomware actors but i mean the thing is even if even if you know who stole the money you still have to get them and a lot of these guys are in russia and until very recently the russian government wasn't extraditing anybody right so they have this rule um in in russia and all of the the soviet bloc countries uh don't shit where you eat mm-hmm. so so like those guys they can pretty much get off scot-free as long as they don't hack anybody in a russian-speaking country and there was actually a, con- a controversy about uh tajikistan which uh, let me make sure i have the name right Uh, there there was a, there was a controversy about whether or not they were able to ransomware computers in Tajikistan, uh, because it's technically, technically not one of those countries, but it's like a little too close. So a lot of these, uh, they actually won't deploy on a computer where the language code is, the language is set to Russian. Um, so yeah, anyways, if you're in Russia hacking the United States, they don't really care that much, um, you know. And I think there's been a few incidents of uh, of actually FSB officers being involved in criminal hacking operations. So mm-hmm. that's that's like really a political issue, um, a foreign policy issue. Yeah. Uh, yeah.
0: So. So I've been like in this community meeting of yours first uh, in first community meeting in Honest NFT, and you guys talked about comment reveal scheme. So uh, and and I mean you talked about <laughs> comment reveal yep. scheme a lot. Oh, why are you so attached to that? What it really is.
1: So it's it's in theory it should be really simple. Um, I'm actually writing up the code for our commit reveal scheme right now. So oh. my mind, um, right. So. What I like about the commit reveal schemes, and this is a super important aspect of cryptography, is that uh, I can do things that are provably fair. So remember when I was talking about the NFTs and we could know which NFT was going to be minted beforehand because we found the metadata leaked. Mm -hmm. So the other thing is if you're running an NFT project, you can just mint the rare NFTs to yourself, right? Um, And nobody would know. Right. You can make a new Ethereum address, make sure it's not connected to any of your old Ethereum addresses, uh, you know, buy an NFT for 0.1 ETH and then uh, make change the metadata so that the one you bought on this anonymous account is the most rare and then sell it for one ether. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very difficult for me to prove that somebody did that. We're pretty good at it. But. uh, You know. You can you can definitely uh, make it impossible to be detected, right? Because somebody always gets the most rare NFT, right? So unless you got like all ten of the most rare ones, there's really you can't really say that it's like statistically anomalous. So how do you prove that you didn't cheat? Uh, I, I you know it's impossible unless I'm like looking over your shoulder watching you, like you know make the random metadata and like uh, it, it's impossible. Now that being said, you can actually prove it if you use a commit-reveal scheme, right? Which is um, and I, I'm I'm still I'm not I'm not the best at explaining these.
0: Uh, no worries. Um,
1: yeah, yeah. I, I think Jeff linked to an article that I'm I haven't had a chance to read it yet. But I'm sure it's better than whatever than my mm-hmm. explanation. Um, there's actually there's there's some cryptographers who are really good at explaining this uh, at, at different levels. I'm not one of them. Um, Okay, so commit reveal, Uh, let's say I have 10,000 NFTs, uh, 10,000 people have bought them. Um, I will give you, I will commit that like, here's the traits for each of the 10,000 NFTs, right? So there's, you know, 9,000 that are kind of not that rare. And then there's a thousand that have really rare uh, traits. Um, Sorry, I'm just trying to these notifications. So I'm committing like, here's, here's the metadata for the NFTs. You know, we have like, we have one that one board Ape that has an astronaut suit and one that's a zombie and so on, but we haven't assigned them to the individual tokens that people have yet. We've just committed that these are the the NFTs that we have. So then you reveal which one is the zombie and which one is the, the, the astronaut. And to do that you get a random number that nobody could have known earlier mm-hmm. and you use that to, to generate, a, uh, you use that to randomize the order of the NFTs and there's, we're, we're debating uh, whether you can just shift them by a specific number or whether you have to shuffle them. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, so the, the simplest one is called an offset. So I'll just generate a random number one through 10,000. I generate the number 4,000 And I have this list of all the NFTs. Uh, Now I shift them all by 4,000 and that's the new token ID, right? So number one is now 4,001 and number uh, whatever, 600 is now 4,600, right? Mm -hmm. And now everybody can know that because I didn't know the random number that I used beforehand, uh, that it was impossible for me to have gained an advantage and impossible for me to have minted the rare NFTs to myself. And uh, we're we're going to try and just open source the code. I think it's going to be like 25 lines of code that anybody with like even the most basic knowledge can read and be like, okay, this is legit, right? Mm-hmm. And it's so simple and so elegant, right? Like, like 25 lines of code. Uh, don't hold me to it. It may be 30, but it's <laughs> going to be like somewhere like that, um, right? So then the next part is making sure that you have a random number that's not influenceable. And that's actually pretty easy because the blockchain spits out a new random number, uh, right? So there are ways to influence the the random numbers. That well, so we're we're going to use something called a chainlink VRF, mm-hmm. verifiably random function. So it's basically impossible to uh, to get it to it give, to give a random number that gives me an edge. So that's it. It's it's actually when you see the code, it'll be way more straightforward. <laughs> But it's just yeah. a way to be like provably uncheatable. And it's, it's really simple. Uh, I just, you know, and it's, it's like the simplest type of cryptographic provable fairness, right? And, I, you know, I, I'm a huge, now you've got me on my soapbox. I'm a huge fan of this because I see so many things that we call like insider extractable value, not just in blockchain space, but in everything, right? Uh, you know, mm-hmm. in equities, you've got CEOs, insider trading all the time, and you can't prove it, right? Or you've got, you know, Congress people uh, influencing stock prices that, you know, where they're they're buying and selling those stocks or, or options or whatever, um, right? So if you can minimize insider extractable value, then you increase confidence in markets, you know, you increase fairness, you don't have people. Right. I mean, insider trading and all that stuff, it's, it's extracting value, right? It's a tax on people who aren't doing it. So if we can just minimize that it's, it's gonna prevent this extraction of value and just, you know, what, what do they say? A rising tide lifts all boats. So if we can just sort of, yeah. you know, distribute all of that water that was being extracted to everybody else, like it's great, you know, so that's, that's one of the goals. Mm-hmm.
0: So, uh, in one of your tweets, uh, you said that there's a clear demand for custom artists to control NFT smart protocols. Uh, what is that, and why so?
1: So, so I think that that started out with our our friend Ncheesy. So this guy Ncheesy, and I am not I don't want it to sound like I'm I'm shilling his art. Uh, I met him at uh, at the uh, NFT conference in New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, this guy. He's um, you know, he's a uh, Mexican. All of his art is uh, uh Aztec inspired. So his his family is Aztec, they they speak the language. I'm gonna I'm gonna butcher the name of the language. It's uh nah, nah, nah I, I don't <laughs> I feel really bad, but,
0: but like it's, no it's, it's
1: it's not a dead language. It's got a I think it's got a couple million speakers, right? But it's oh. this Aztec dialect. So all of his art. Is, uh, is, is inspired by Aztec mythology. Super cool. Um, you know it, it's the style you know if you go in Mexico you'll see the style everywhere. but uh, so so he, uh, he had this problem where he uh, minted this NFT and um, the image wasn't wasn't rendering properly and it was impossible to fix. So I took a closer look. And uh, he had minted it through a smart contract that was owned by Rarible, which is sort of one of the OpenSea competitors. And they had changed like one line in their front end that added like five extra characters to the token metadata that made it so that when OpenSea was displaying his image, it was, it was pointing to the wrong image. It couldn't load the image of his NFT, right? Oh. And that was, that was beyond his control, right? Because he's not a technical guy. Uh, he didn't do anything wrong. He just used their contract as it was designed to be used, and uh, their front end had changed this. And there was no way for him to uh, to fix it, right? So what he ended up having to do, uh, I, I can't remember if if OpenSea, I think OpenSea may have fixed the way that they were parsing the the metadata uh, URI. I don't remember exactly how that, that ended up being fixed. But anyways. If you're an artist, you're at the mercy of whoever controls the smart contract that you're using, um, right? And then the the other example that came out more recently was a lot of people have been using uh, OpenSea's, uh, what do they call it? I think they call it the storefront, right? And it's this one contract that OpenSea controls. And then OpenSea added a limit to the number of NFTs that any one account could mint using their storefront contract, which again, you know, hurt
0: all of the people who had their businesses
1: built on top of this
0: yeah they took it back right yeah
1: they took it back like a few hours later (laughs) because there was so much backlash right and i mean this is not a thing that's unique to blockchain and web3 you know you get these companies that uh are dependent on facebook for a big part of their business or whatever and then get censored or, or facebook's algorithm changes or whatever and then their whole business goes to Goes down the toilet. I feel like Zynga may have had had some issues with that, mm-hmm. um, and like Farmville, where you're you're really dependent on this third party. Uh, so uh-huh. yeah, I mean, if if you control the contract yourself, then you don't have to worry about OpenSea changing their contract or Rarible changing their contract, and you know affecting your business. So that's mm-hmm. you know, and people are starting to realize that now. This has happened a few times.
0: So right now, uh, like after uh, this BAYC uh, thingy where people were able to buy uh, BAYCs or any other cool cats or anything like that at a much lower cost, which was uh, like much lower ether, which was like listed a while ago. And now they delisted it, but then they don't want to pay the gas fees for that. So uh, so they do all that stuff of shifting it to one another wallet and bring it back and all that stuff. And then, but that didn't end up being removed from OpenSea backend. It was only uh, removed from OpenSea frontend. And after that, since that, people have been like, oh, uh, okay, we are not a technical guy. So we don't know what's happening really behind it. And so better stay away from it. And and many of, many of I guess even you have created one, like IP logging NFTs, where if you go and look at an NFT, you will be, like leaking the ip address or something so people offer all this stuff uh they have been really speculative and uh scared to go in this industry so you guess do you think uh, the critics are right to say that stay away from it or try it out or what to do
1: well yes and no there's absolutely a lot of huge flaws um yeah so the mm-hmm. the the issue with uh the OpenSea, uh, the OpenSea buys that, that that actually has two separate issues, right? So part of it is that OpenSea is kind of on damage control mode. They're potentially, I mean, I'm not a lawyer, but I, I think they, they have some liability there. Uh, one interesting thing is that they, not everyone who had this happen to them actually did the thing where they transferred it between wallets, right? So CK um, on our team, uh, it happened to him. And in his case, what happened is he uh, he listed an NFT at, at like one Ether. Then he lowered the price to 0.8 Ether. And then he removed one of the listings, but he didn't remove both listings. However, OpenSea told him that he had removed both listings, right? Mm-hmm. And he can't keep track of that. And then like a few months later, the price went up to the price of the old listing and somebody was able to find it and buy his NFT. Um, so part of that was actually... OpenSea issue that they haven't really been talking about, which is that their front end was wrongly telling people that their things were delisted. But yeah, I mean, uh, non technical people have so many disadvantages in this space, and you can't hide that. Um, so, that being said, you know, we're still early. Um, there's a lot of projects that are trying to make it easier for people to read the blockchain data and understand it. Um, but yeah, it, it's you know it's it's a fair criticism that there were early in this industry there's a lot of things that have mm-hmm. to change um unsophisticated investors oh, well you shouldn't sorry let I mean, investing in nfts is really really risky like you're investing yeah. in JPEG, uh right it's one thing it's <laughs> like it's a community that you think is cool that's creating value uh and you want to hang out with them and you want to have a cool profile picture and Mm -hmm. you know but it's another thing to like buy these nfts with the intention of selling them for more later and calling that an investment um so yeah it is really really risky and yeah i i think it's it's more like gambling than investing and a lot Mm -hmm. of times you know the the house has a huge edge that you don't fully understand um Mm -hmm. so yeah and i mean like we so the our, our ip logging nft that was a that was a shit post that, that got taken a little bit, you know, mm-hmm. I think we struck a nerve. Yeah. So what happened there is, um, we realized that, uh, so normally the OpenSea, uh, normally the images on OpenSea are stored on o- Open. So like, say I make an NFT, OpenSea will, uh, pull the image from my token URI off the blockchain and it'll actually store it on OpenSea servers. It's, it's Google servers, but like on OpenSea's account. Um, However, with the animation URL NFTs, it would actually uh, uh, display my content from my web server on OpenSea in an iframe, right? So it would actually be pulling the data off of my server and then I could see the IP address that was requesting it. Um, So like we'd known about this for a while and I guess last week I realized that not everybody or two weeks ago now, I realized that uh, not everybody realized that this is what was going on um, because uh, somebody disclosed a similar data leakage in MetaMask um, and it, 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 I guess it kind of been an open secret. Like anybody who had made an animation URL NFT knew about this, right? Because you read the documentation you see that this is how it works. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's, being able to track user data, that's that's like very web 2.0, right? I mean, that's like Google and Facebook and Twitter's bread and butter, butter right? Like that's how they're making mm-hmm. money, right? Um, now, that being said, there's a lot of really sketchy uh, stuff going on that people don't really appreciate. Um, so I was just shopping for health insurance and uh, my mom at her house, uh, put in a request for a cro- quote with health insurance with a fake name uh, for me. Like she was just like trying to figure out if, if she could find a good price. Um, and uh, I had been at their house recently. So I guess my IP address or like some, somehow somebody knew that, that I, I was using their IP address. Uh, so like 30 seconds after she submits the form, I get a phone to my phone number. Right. So someone had somehow associated me with her IP address and her lead generation and my phone number and my full name, date of birth, all that stuff. And I got like offered a quote on health insurance. I wasn't even sure because I had also like submitted some things. So I didn't know if this was like a, a call that I had solicited or if this was just like a random uh, junk mail call. So anyways, there's like really scary stuff out there that people don't really appreciate uh, because they haven't you know, used it themselves uh, Mm -hmm. for, you know, connecting digital identities to real people. Uh, and that's, I think that's purely web two. I'm really not a fan of, uh, people monetizing my data without me being very clear about how it's being used. Mm -hmm. Uh, right. So that's, that's how we feel, what we think web three should be. Right. So we put that out there and then there was a bit of a sensationalist title. Uh, so, I, I call yeah. it uh, a right-click saving NFT. Right? <laughs> right-click save is like the dumbest meme in NFTs, right? Yeah. So I, I, I thought that people would realize it was a shit post as soon as I said, I right-click saved your IP address. But uh, they, but then the uh, the journalist equated right-click saving with stealing, which is really interesting on its own, right? Oh. So he said, this <laughs> NFT steals your IP address, right? Which is, you know, a very charged word. Uh, and then yeah. people we upset about the, the use of the word steal your IP address, right? You can't really steal an IP address. You can log it. You can abuse it. But, you know, the, the IP address still belongs to whoever it's assigned to. Um, but, uh, yeah, so that that triggered a, a, a minor little controversy. Yeah. So,
0: So I believe, like, there are great ideas out there, but then they're downgraded by all this garbage fraud which is happening.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it's really, I mean, that's the thing is, you know, there's, there's some people who say all NFTs are scams, which I disagree with. I can point to plenty of NFTs that are not scams and the cheesy's NFTs are not scams. He's just trying to like, you know, put his, his heritage on a blockchain. Right. Mm-hmm. But that being said, there are a lot of scams. So I would say not all of them are scams, but sure. There's plenty. Um, yeah.
0: And, and I've been like uh, getting a lot of tweets I don't know if it'll be. I don't know if I have to cut this off, uh, here or, or what. But like many people around, they if they own a crypto wallet, or something, they're being asked to get up, get out their public. I mean key, or or any like in the MetaMask you have that phrase, right? Uh, which I restore, and they they are asking for that openly from them, and. So, and and many people who are, who are in crypto, they, they they're not able to get their money back through exchanges or something like that. So why is this all happening?
1: Yeah. I mean, anytime that there's easy money to be made, scammers will, will find a way. Um, Right. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I mean, the, 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 the seed phrase theft is, is a huge problem. Right. And ultimately you know, there's two things you can do, right? One is you can uh, go after the people who are stealing the seed phrases. Uh, and two is you can try to prevent users from actually uh, giving out these seed phrases. And that's an education thing. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's easy money to be made, right? Like if if you can, and a lot of these are, are like teenagers who have nothing better to do, uh, you know, there's more organized groups in, in other countries. Uh, but yeah, whenever there's a way to make money, people will find a way to will find a way to get it from you. Um, yeah, I mean, I actually got a, a phone call yesterday uh, pretending to be from Coinbase and they were, I guess, trying to get me to, uh, I, I don't know, I, I didn't, I didn't uh, go along with it. Next time I'll go along with it and see exactly what the scam is. But yeah, they're you know just trying to fish their way into your account um yeah there's a lot of issues around custody and self-custody and mm-hmm. the real solution is that people need to switch over to hardware wallets but then the hardware wallets really aren't that great either I and mean, especially this ledger wallet that i have you know half the time it doesn't work uh the treasure mm-hmm. wallets aren't any better i have friends who weren't able to use their treasure wallets on certain websites but yeah you know growing pains and i, I mm-hmm. it's yeah, it's, it's a shame that all of the focus right now is on like NFTs that people can sell for more money when like we should really be focusing on making everything as accessible to the average user as possible. But that's just where the market is and where the, where the money is to be made.
0: Yeah, the, and then there's this wallet, uh, Samurai wallet, and it claims to be the safest for Bitcoin because it's only for Bitcoin. But uh, is that is that what it really is or is there something really behind it?
1: Uh, I use Wasabi Wallet um, mostly, mostly for when I want to um, uh, coin join my Bitcoin. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean it, it's it's pretty safe, you know. It, it keeps your uh, your private key. If your private key is stored on your computer, it keeps it encrypted. Now, that being said, there is still a risk that somebody hacks your computer, gets your encrypted private key, decrypts it, and steals all your Bitcoin. Right. So the only Really safe way is to store it on a hardware wallet, right? So I've got like this ledger. I've got got a Trezor still new in the box, but uh, you know, uh, got got many hardware wallets, right? And that's kept in a secure enclave on a separate uh, device that really can't be um, is very difficult to hack. You now that being said, people have found ways to to steal mm-hmm. funds from them.
0: And uh, like there are several companies who want to incorporate blockchain or any other, any web3 stuff or like t5 make a DAO. and what do you think uh they should gain knowledge in or or what are the questions they should ask themselves before uh incorporating blockchain
1: yeah so the the first question is do you really need blockchain to solve this problem uh mm-hmm. and sometimes the answer is yes but honestly most of the time the answer is no Right, especially for the decentralized ledger technology, um, it was a huge, it was super popular to make like private blockchains uh, back in 2017, 2018 in the ICO boom. And, you know, the thing is what people identified was old IT infrastructure that had to be overhauled. But like overhauling your company's uh, whole database system and whatever, is really expensive. So then people were like saying like, oh, we're not overhauling the database structure. We're making it on a blockchain, which is this new better thing, right? So it, it made that more palatable to CEOs who really didn't understand the technology. Right. Which I'm actually okay with because, you know, a lot of these companies have really old software that is not up to snuff and it does need to be upgraded. Right. So if you're gonna if you're gonna call it blockchain to get people to upgrade something that needs to be upgraded, okay, I really don't you know, do you do you? Um, but like, if you're trying to make it decentralized, there's a lot of things where you really don't necessarily need a decentralized ledger. That being said, uh, you know, you have all sorts of cool permissionless stuff you can do, and you've got all this DeFi composability. So if that's something that you really need, it makes sense. The other thing that they need to think about is scalability, right? I mean, uh it was already a few years ago that Crypto create, Crypto Kitties was like. <laughs> taking over the Ethereum blockchain, right? And it was great when there were only like a couple hundred nerds doing it, but when it got up to like tens of thousands of people doing this all day, the transaction fees came up, right? So there's all these layer twos that have different security Mm trade-offs. But yeah, you need to figure out like, does this need a blockchain? How is it gonna scale? And what needs to be on the blockchain versus what can be kept off of the chain, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, you wanna, you know, Doing anything in a decentralized manner is going to be more expensive, right? So you just need like some fail-safes that are on the blockchain, but everything else for the most part can be held off chain as long as you've you've got sort of good incentive structure, uh, good mechanisms designed, you know, there's like a lot of game theory comes into designing these mechanisms, Mm -hmm. right? So like I can double spend Bitcoin, but it's going to cost me a lot more than I can make to do it. So why would I do it? Right. I mean, I can't double spend Bitcoin, but like if I had a bunch of mining pools, I could theoretically double spend Bitcoin, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. it would cost me more to do than I would stand to make. Right. So that's just game. Theoretically, it doesn't make sense to do it.
0: Yeah. So like with all these, with all these new blockchain technology coming in, with all the new blockchains coming in, with layer one, layer two coming in and with different crypto coming in. Um, do you think there in future there'll be just one chain and just one crypto and all the other stuff will be just blocked or just removed?
1: Uh, it's really hard to say. I mean, a lot of people say there's going to be a multi-chain future and I kind of, I was skeptical of that at first, but I'm starting to to lean into it a bit more. Um, you know, you may have uh, different change, ma- different chains built for different use cases, uh, right? And you also, like, as soon as you get into sharding and all of that, like, you know, you kind of want all of your finance apps to be able to interact with each other pretty easily with less friction because you get composability that way. But like, I don't need my finance app talking to my, uh, I don't know, video app that often right? Maybe uh, occasionally you do. So I, I think there's going to be um, potentially just it, it, it's probably going to be more efficient to have these things kind of siloed off, right? And like you can, even right now, it's easy to move money from Polygon to Ethereum, to the Binance Smart Chain, to Avalanche, right? Through all of these bridges, but it does add a little bit more friction. Um, so I, I think that's probably the most likely thing just because... Mm-hmm.
0: uh with, you know, it, it's it's easier
1: yeah. to
0: get there yeah with all these scams going on like, i would, i would like wanna end this here with this big question that with all these scams going on around do you think in the future people will be ready to incorporate blockchain as blockchain is equal to trust code is equal to law or or is going to take a while for them
1: uh I think it can happen. I think we're starting to hit up on some use cases where, where uh, it already makes sense. Um, I mean, I'm a huge fan of Uniswap V3, right? So I was I was running a small market making operation on on really volatile things uh, before Uniswap V3 came out, right? So basically, um, it, there were certain tokens where if the price went up ten percent. Uh, in a short period of time, I would sell it and if the price went down 10%, I would buy it right. So we were talking sort of like on the minutes time scale here. Um, and uh, I was able to do that because Uniswap v2 wasn't very capital efficient, so it was very volatile. Um, you know people had uh, like a, a small a small trade would move the price of something by a couple percent, right? And uh, I was making a lot of money off of this swing trading. And then Uniswap V3 came about and uh, it became about five to tenfold more capital efficient. And uh, like a trade that used to move the market 5% would now only move the market half a percent. Mm
0: -hmm. And
1: uh, all of those fees were now going to the people who were putting their money in Uniswap V3. Whereas previously I had been extracting that through my market making operation. Right. So like this put me out of business, which, which, you know, I mean, like, like obviously I would love to have more money, but like it's way cooler that the money is now going to the people who are staking it and not to some sophisticated person operating mm-hmm. market operation. Right. So you're going to start to see more of that where um, the money is really being uh, money, which had previously been extracted by sophisticated participants is now being internalized to people who are using the protocols It should be. Right. But that's only when you have really good product market fit. Um, mm-hmm. So there's, there's going to be some of those use cases coming along and we're getting there. Uh, but it's, it's going to take longer than people uh, expect it to. And it's, mm-hmm. it's going to be a few little niches that, that, you know, explode. And I think if, if you're just trying to get into this, the, the trick is you actually have to use the technology every day and, you know not maybe not every day but you have to you have to use it you have to see what you like what you don't like um you have to understand the composability and all of that uh right and i mean like i'm I'm a huge fan of of all the layer twos i'm mostly using arbitrum these days but like polygon is, is fine most of the time you know and just getting familiar with how these things work and seeing like what is an i what is a good idea what isn't a good idea trying to understand where the money that you're Like if you're, if you're farming something, it's really important to understand where that money is coming from. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, Is your money coming from other people buying the token that you're farming and then selling? Why are those people buying it? Are they just speculating or do they know something you don't know? Right. So trying to really understand all of this is tricky and yeah, you know, a lot of projects aren't going to make it, but there's a few that, that really could change the world. Um, yeah if if you find and if you find them early you're going to do pretty well
0: (laughs) yeah totally bird thank you so much for joining and sharing your such a great knowledge i have to listen to this again (laughs) the recording so that uh, i understand fully right so thank you so much
1: yeah. Thanks. Those are some challenging questions. Uh, and, and be in touch. And yeah, don't 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 hesitate to ask if there's anything you want me to clarify.
0: Yeah. Thank you so much.